Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited that you came across this message. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. Once again, thank you for joining us today. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. I was only five years old when Hank Aaron retired from his 23-year Major League Baseball career. If you're a fan of baseball at all, you know this this stature, this swing, this, this image of Hank Aaron hitting home runs out of a baseball stadium. In my eyes as a kid, hammering Hank was larger than life. I grew up four hours from Atlanta, Georgia, where he spent much of his career with the Atlanta Braves. And I, I, I just, Hank Aaron was somebody that was larger than life to me. When he retired from Major League Baseball, he was first in home runs. He was first in RBIs. He was second in all-time hits. Hank Aaron is arguably the greatest player to ever play Major League Baseball. If you don't follow the sport and not a fan of Hank Aaron, you may not be aware of this, but January the 21st of this year, Hank Aaron died. And as somebody who'd followed his career, even from the time I was a little boy, to his, his retirement career as he worked continually in Major League Baseball, that day on January the 21st when he died was a real sad day for me. I have in my office, I brought it over here today, I have in my office an autographed Wheaties box with Hank Aaron's picture on it. And I remember when the news broke that Hank Aaron died, I, I sat in my office and I just looked at this Wheaties box that he'd signed For a moment, just remembering some of the highlights of this incredible career. And not only did did I do that, there's a a place in Atlanta, Georgia, where when Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record of 714 home runs, when he hit his 715th home run, he did it at a stadium that is no longer there in Atlanta, Georgia. The only part of the stadium that's still there is the wall the little section of the wall where his ball went over it to break Babe Ruth's home run record. You'll see a picture up here of a makeshift memorial that's there on that wall. When, when the news broke of Hank Aaron's death, people began to bring flowers and they began to bring pictures and they brought their kids and they would just stand in front of that wall and take a minute and reflect and think about the life and the legacy of Hammerin Hank Aaron. As you look at that picture, what is a memorial. When you think about a memorial, a memorial is really an opportunity through a place or an experience to remember the life of someone who's passed and then celebrate all that they live for. That's really what I did that morning sitting in my office looking at that Wheaties box. I created a makeshift memorial and I just kind of pressed pause on the day and just spent a moment thinking about the life of Hank Aaron and all that he'd accomplished and people all over Atlanta and really all over the country and there are still ballparks all season this season that are having moments to remember the life and legacy of Hank Aaron. But I got to be honest with you, as much as I love Hank Aaron in an infinitely greater way 
we have something and someone to celebrate and remember this weekend as a family of faith. Something far greater than a baseball career, something far greater than any life anybody on this earth could live. This weekend, through the means of communion and the Lord's Supper, we are going together to celebrate something and someone that exceeds anything else that's ever happened on planet earth. We are celebrating the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we have embraced the gospel. You say, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus. Paul articulates it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what he said. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're here, maybe somebody invited you, and this is your first time ever in a church. Maybe you've never walked into a church. You've never been a part of a service like this before. I want to be sure that you understand the reality of the gospel. The gospel teaches us that all of us have sinned against God. Every one of us have chosen to disobey God and step across his boundaries. But the reality of the gospel is that God loved us even though we sinned against him. Now, because of our sin, there was nothing we could do to ever earn ourselves a right standing with God. We couldn't earn our way back into God's favor. We couldn't earn our way back into a relationship with God. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus, God, became a man, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, took all of your sin, all of my sin, all that separated us from God. He took it on himself. And on the cross, Jesus died paying our penalty. But the good news of the gospel is he did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sins so that now you and I can put our faith and trust in the gospel and we're reconciled to God. We're forgiven of all of our sins and we're brought into relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. And on the eve before his crucifixion, before Jesus died for the sins of the world, he met with his disciples in an upper room. And in that upper room, Jesus gave them a practice. We call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. But it was a practice designed to be a memorial. It was designed to be a moment when they would kind of press pause on what was going on around them and just for a few moments reflect on the totality of what Jesus accomplished for us through the cross. That simple practice that Jesus gave them on that evening before he died became one of the most powerful worship expressions in the early church. When the early church would gather after the resurrection of Jesus, every time they would take the Lord's Supper, I can't even fathom what it must have been like because they were there. They saw Jesus with his own hands take the bread and with his own hands take the cup and bless it and explain it. And then when they came together to celebrate it, having watched him demonstrate this practice, it became an, an incredible expression of worship in the early church. And now that expression has been passed down to us over 2,000 years from those very first believers. But unfortunately, for many today 
who call themselves Christians. The Lord's Supper or communion is simply a ritual. It's just a little practice that we stick on to the last five minutes of a church service when we're going out the door. It's kind of a little emotional or spiritual pick-me-up. And a lot of people don't understand why this is so significant and why we do this. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, teaches us why. And that's what I want us to focus on this weekend. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to begin reading in verse number 23. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put the verses up here on the screen for you. But Paul here is writing to a church, the church in Corinth, and he's explaining to them about the Lord's table, about communion, and why it's so significant. And I want us, before we celebrate this together, to look at this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Paul writes and he says, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, very important statement, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul gives us some instruction about what this is and why we do it. Out of those verses, what I want to do is ask and answer two questions. One of them, to be honest, is the most most repeated question we get at Hope Church about the Lord's Supper. But, to be transparent, it's a question that's not very important. But it is the question we get most often. So I'm going to deal with it first, and then I'll deal with the second question, which is the most important question and where we'll spend most of our time this weekend. So here's the first question, and this is the one I get asked more often than any other question. Here's the question. When do we do this at Hope? How often do we do this at Hope? Because some people come from different backgrounds, different practices where it's done with different regularity. And so at Hope Church, we have a unique way about how we approach the win of this. And so a lot of people say, man, when do we do this? How often does our church take the Lord's Supper? Maybe you've been coming for some time and you've yet to be in one of the services where we've taken communion or the Lord's Supper. And you're thinking, man, does this church not do that? Do they not practice this? Well, yes, we do. But there's a reason why we don't do it quite as often as some people. Some people argue that this has to be done every single week. Maybe some of you come from a church background or church culture where every single week they take communion on the way out the door as the last thing or they take communion as a part of the service every single week. A lot of churches that do it every single week believe that somehow it imparts a means of grace into their life. I think they've added something to it that what Jesus gave us never intended to be, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But some people adamantly, like, you got to do this every single week. Other people are adamant that you have to do it once a month. They believe the first Sunday of the month is when it's supposed to be done, and that's how you ought to do it. Other people argue just as vehemently it ought to be done once a quarter on the fifth Sunday of every quarter. That's when it ought to be done. And there are other people who argue 
that it ought to be done once a year as a replacement for the old Jewish celebration of Passover. So there are a lot of different people that argue with what regularity should you do this. So when do we do it at Hope and and why did we choose that? Well, I'm going to show you what the Bible says about how often we're supposed to do it. It's the only place in the Bible where it speaks to the timing of the Lord's Supper. And I just read it for you in these verses. I'm going to put it up here. You ready? Here it is. As often as. That's it. So unless you can do a deep dive in the Greek language and show me that that means more than I think it does, what Paul is saying here is it's up to every local individual fellowship to do this as often as they choose to do it. Is it wrong to do it every week? No. Is it wrong to do it once a month? No. Is it wrong to do it once a quarter? Is it wrong to do it once a year? No. At Hope Church, we tend to do it between three and five times a year because when we do it, we don't want to just tack it onto the end of the service. We want to make it a part of everything we're doing that weekend, that the whole weekend is dedicated to us pushing Paul to reflect and remember and celebrate all that Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. So that's all the Bible has to say about how often we're to do this. As often as you do it, but then Paul went on to say, as often as you do it, you need to make sure you're doing it for the right reason. And that's the second question that I really want to deal with this weekend. It's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Why do we do this? At Hope Church, we do it three to five times a year, depending on the schedule. But, but why is it that we do this practice? And here's the reality. A lot of Christians simply don't know why. Some don't know why because nobody's ever told them. Like nobody's ever taught them. You just came to Christ, got into church. They said, here's what we do. You started doing it and never really understood why other than the fact it's just what the church said we were supposed to do. So we did it. Some people have forgotten why. Maybe they were taught why at some point, but over the course of doing it through the years, they've forgotten why they do this. Some have never examined the question why. Some would simply say, well, we do it because Jesus said to, and that's true. We do this in obedience to Jesus. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, it's an imperative, meaning it's a command. He's commanded us as his followers to do this together. But why do we do it? And I want to share with you four reasons out of these verses why we do this. And I hope after hearing this, you'll never take communion or the Lord's Supper the same way again. I hope that maybe what you've done in the past and you just walk through it as a little bit of a spiritual ritual. I hope after hearing this, you'll understand why this is is such a significant moment in the life of the church and why it can be a powerful expression of worship. I'm going to give it to you in four statements, but the four statements are all centered on a different key word. So you'll see the word identified. So here's statement number one, why we do this. The Lord's Supper invites us to remember all the gospel has accomplished in the past. The Lord's Supper invites us to remember, there's the key word, remember all the gospel has accomplished in the past. Jesus said in the text, do this in 
remembrance of me. He said it in verse 24, and he repeated it in verse 25. The word remembrance here in the Greek language is a word that literally means memorial. Jesus said, I've given you this as a memorial. It's a word that indicates looking back into the past to remember a vivid experience and to reflect on its meaning and value. Jesus said, I want you to do this not just as some spiritual pick-me-up, not as a ritual to check it off the to-do list. I want you to do this to press pause, to stop for a minute and simply look back and think on the glorious reality of the cross. Alan Redpath, a great writer, listen to what he said about it. He said, this, do this in remembrance of me. It is the one who has given something for us at Calvary, asking each of us to remember his death. To put that at the very center of our Christian experience. It is he who loved us even unto death, calling us out from the busyness and often the barrenness of all our pressure and work that we might wait upon him in our stillness, in the stillness of our hearts and worship him. He points us back, not to his life or example, but to that which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel, the atonement of the cross, the finished work of Calvary, and the open tomb. Here's why Jesus gave us this practice. He's inviting us to step out of the busyness of our lives. Because just think about it. How many times this week, you don't have to answer, but how many times this week did you just take a few minutes and sit and think about all that Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection? You see, Jesus knew what would happen. We get busy. Life happens. We go about our job, our work, our family, our hobbies, and we just run past the reality of the gospel. And the danger of the gospel is we become so familiar with these terms that we're not moved anymore with emotion when we think about all that Jesus accomplished for us. And Jesus said, I'm giving you this, and I'm inviting you to just stop for a minute. To tune everything else out, turn off the phone, turn down the music, and just simply listen and think about all that I accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection. There are really two primary truths about Jesus we're to reflect on. He uses two images, the bread and the cup. The bread speaks to us of the doctrine of the incarnation. You say, what does that mean? The doctrine of the incarnation is the truth that God became a man. Did you know that Jesus is eternal? Meaning Jesus has existed for all eternity. He has no beginning and he has no ending. But at a point in time, which by the way he created, he chose to enter the time that he existed outside the parameters of. He chose to enter time at a moment in history and Jesus took on humanity. God became a man. So much man that he were not God at all and so much God that he were not man at all. He is the God man. The Bible says it this way in, in Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes and he says, For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Here's what that means. Jesus is all that God is with skin on. And when we take the bread, we're to simply sit and remember and worship that God became a man for us. People ask the question, what is God like? And people are like, I don't know how to answer that question. I do. Just point to Jesus. Because when you see Jesus, you see God in the flesh. You see God as a person. 
When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus heals, God heals. When Jesus loves, God loves. Jesus is God in the flesh. Not just the bread, we take the cup. The cup is the symbol of the blood that he shed for us. Teaches us the great doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. What do you mean by that? Here's what that means. That Jesus was our substitute. He stood in our place. He died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the, the, the message of the gospel, that, that this great exchange took place. He took all of our sin, and in exchange, we got all of his righteousness. When we take the bread, when we take the cup, those are symbols. They're pictures to remind us of all that Jesus accomplished. Now, some people go too far with that. I say, what do you mean? Some people would take this literally. When Jesus says to, about the bread, this is my body, and about the cup, this is my blood, they would teach that literally that what we have in the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to experience the Lord's death. There are those that would teach that it literally becomes his body and it becomes his blood as we partake of it. But let me give you three reasons why I don't believe that Jesus meant that literally when he said it. Number one is because the words Jesus used. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The word remembrance is a word I told you. It means memorial. Do this to remember. Jesus could have said, do this to experience me. But that's not what he said. He said, do this to remember me. The second reason I don't think he meant it literally when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, is because when Jesus first said it, he was present in the room with his disciples in the incarnation, meaning he had, he had chosen to limit himself as a human being in the room with those disciples. If he meant it literally, it means that Jesus was two places at once in the incarnation and it de-emphasizes the great truth that God became a man. The third reason I don't think he meant it literally is because of the pattern of Jesus to use figurative language in the New Testament. For example, Jesus said, I am the door. When Jesus said, I am the door, did he literally mean he was a piece of wood with a handle on it? Jesus said, I am the vine. Did he literally mean he was a piece of vegetation running along the ground? Jesus said, I am the living water. Did he literally mean that he was a cup of water? No, he used figurative language in the New Testament to communicate spiritual truth. That's the same thing he was doing right there in the room. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So I have brought this picture from my house. This is a picture of my family. So I'm telling you, this is my family. Now, when I said this is my family, did anybody in the room for a single second think what I meant was this is literally my family? My family is an 8 by 10 framed picture. That's my, no, I didn't mean, when I said this is my family, what I meant is this is a picture that represents something very real that is in my life. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, not for one second did any disciple sitting in that room think we're about to eat Jesus. They understood what Jesus was saying is, this represents my body. It's a picture. It's a reminder. 
that I became a man. And it's a reminder that I shed my blood on the cross for your sin. So first of all, the Lord's Supper is given as an invitation for us to remember all that the gospel has accomplished. But there's a second truth. The Lord's Supper allows us to proclaim, there's the second key word, the power of the gospel in the present. Look back at verse 26. In verse 26, Paul writes and he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The word proclaim in the Greek language is a word that means to declare openly, to declare out loud, to announce. And it's a word that's used over and over in the book of Acts to talk about, to describe the disciples preaching the gospel, speaking boldly about the truths of the gospel. You may or may not be aware of this, but we are living in a dangerous time in the church in America. And here's what I mean by that. The church in America has become so consumed with self-help philosophy, prosperity, and felt needs that they've drifted and moved away from the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of churches you can go to week after week after week and they'll tell you how to have a happy home life, how to get out of debt, how to have more money in the bank, and how to have anxiety out of your life. They'll tell you all this stuff, but they don't really talk much about the gospel. They say, you know what, hey, we just don't want to offend anybody. Can I be real honest with you? The gospel is an offensive message. Say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. The gospel says you and I need to be saved, and we can't save ourselves. The gospel says that I'm separated from God because of my sin, and there's nothing I can do in my strength. There's nothing I can do in my power. There's nothing I can do in my righteousness to ever make myself right with God. I can be happy. I can be healthy. I can be wealthy. I can be wise, but I can still be lost and separated from God in my sin. The gospel says there's nothing you and I can do to make ourselves right with God but the gospel says God did for us what we could not do on our own and God gave us in this practice the Lord's Supper an anchor to bring us back to the proclamation of the gospel you see the Lord knew our temptation to drift he said they may not preach the gospel all the time but I'll tell you this every time they take the supper they'll have to preach the gospel because they're going to explain what this means What is this cup? What is this bread? What does it symbolize? What does it stand for? Here's what we need to understand. The only hope for Las Vegas, the only hope for the West, the only hope for America, the only hope for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. People need to hear the gospel. And when we open the book and we proclaim the gospel, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit of God takes the gospel and he changes people's lives. You say, explain that. I can't. But it's how God's ordained to work in this world. Remember when you heard the gospel? Aren't you glad somebody told you the gospel, how you could be saved? You see, he gave us the Lord's Supper as an anchor to keep us from drifting from the gospel. Here's the third the reason why we do this. The Lord's Supper inspires us to celebrate all that the gospel will accomplish in the future. I want to put verse 26 back up here. Look at it again. Paul writes and he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what we're doing right now. Every time we do this, we're proclaiming the gospel. But what are the last three words? Until what? Until he what? Until he comes. Can I give you some good news? 
Anybody like some good news tonight? I mean, stuff out there in the world's happening. It's just some discouraging stuff going on. Amen? You need some good news? Here's some good news. Jesus is coming again. I'm going to say it again. I want you to hear it. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming. The Bible tells me one day, one day the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we'll always be with the Lord. Jesus, listen, this world's not all there is. Jesus is coming again, which means this supper, every time we take it, it's not just a memorial to his death. It's a celebration that he's alive and he's coming back again. And here's the reality. We won't always need this practice. You see, one day the memorial supper is going to become the marriage supper. Now, I travel quite a bit and speak in conferences and train pastors around the country and around the world and When I'm traveling, when I'm on the road, I have this thing that I do. I'll I'll get my phone out on an airplane or in a hotel, and I'll just start scrolling through the pictures of my family. Because when I'm away from them, I miss them. And I need those pictures. I just can scroll, and they'll make me laugh just thinking about the moments in those pictures. But you know what I've noticed? When I'm home, I don't need the pictures. You know why? Because they're here. Like, I'm with them. Here's what Paul's telling us. Right now, we need the supper. We need a picture. We need something to allow us to remember all that Jesus... But listen, when he comes again, we don't need a picture. You know why? Because he's going to be there. We'll see him as he is. What we're doing now are those moments when we're looking at the pictures to remember all that Jesus did. But one day he's coming again and we won't need the pictures anymore. Here's the last reason why we do this. The Lord's Supper encourages us to examine the impact of the gospel in our lives today. Look back at verse number 28. I'm going to put it back up here on the screen. Paul writes and he says, let a person examine himself. Then and so eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord. The word examine here is a word that means to put to trial, to test by questioning. Meaning every time we take the Lord's Supper... One of the things that we should do is stop for a minute, examine our heart, and prepare our heart before we take the Lord's Supper. And that's why I think it's really dangerous in some ways the way a lot of churches just stick it on at the end and it's something that you do right out the door. When Paul gives us clear warning, we need to be careful in these moments to examine ourselves. You say, what are we examining? Well, here's what I want you to examine. First of all, I think we should all examine our fellowship with God. And that starts by asking the question, do I even know God? You see, some people participate in the Lord's Supper believing that somehow it imparts grace. They participate in this supper believing that somehow it ensures their salvation. Listen, here's what I want you to hear me say today. If you don't have a relationship with God, you don't need a ceremony. You need a Savior. You don't need a religion. You need a relationship. And all that can be yours because of everything Jesus has already accomplished. Simply by faith, you reach out to him. So if you've never come to know Jesus, the starting point for you this weekend 
is to put your faith and trust in Jesus, to turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus, and surrender your life to him. So we start by asking the question, man, do I even know God? But then secondly, is there anything in my life that's hindering my fellowship with God? If you do know God, if you are walking, if you have a relationship with God, is there any unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with before you take the Lord's Supper? Is there any impure relationship, open rebellion, unforgiveness towards someone else? Anything in your heart that needs to be addressed before and before we take the Lord's Supper, I'm going to give you a moment to just sit before the Lord and allow Him to speak to you about any area in your life that needs to be made right. Part of what Paul's talking about when he says to take the supper in a worthy manner is to take the supper in a way that we know there's nothing hindering our fellowship with God. But not only should we examine our fellowship with God, we should also examine our fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The text that I've read for you here out of 1 Corinthians 11, right before the verses that I've read, he says in verse 17, look at this on the screen. Paul writes and he says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. But when you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. The word division here is a word that it comes from a Greek word that we transliterate the word schism from. It means a tear. It means there's a relationship that's broken between you or brother or sister in Christ. Here's a question we need to ask before we take the Lord's Supper. Is there anything between me or a brother or sister in Christ that needs to be made right before I do this? And Paul's warning us here to be careful as we do this, to not approach it in an unworthy manner, but to examine ourselves, to, to ask some questions about our relationship with God. Charles Stanley said it this way. I love this quote. He said, I like to imagine that I can turn 360 degrees and not think of a soul that I've offended or a grudge that I am harboring. Frankly, I think if we were really honest during this time of reflection and examination, there would be a rustling of people as one believer seeks out another to ask forgiveness. So in a moment when we examine ourselves, just ask some questions in our own heart. Maybe God prompts you, and before you take the Lord's Supper, there's somebody in this room you need to go to first and just say, hey, I need you to forgive me. I need to make this right. Please forgive me. You say, how big a deal is this to examine our heart? Well, let me show you. Look at verse 27, last verse, and we'll take the supper together. Look what he says in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I read that, that sounds heavy, right? He's giving instruction about coming around the Lord's table, communion. And he's writing to a church that was flippant about it. There were divisions. They were at odds with each other. They were just going through the motions. They'd made it a ritual. And Paul's challenging them to remember why we do this. And Paul says, man, if we don't do it right, we're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You say, what in the world does that mean? Because I don't want to do that, right? Well, I don't know how to explain everything that it means, but, but here's the way I understand it. My grandfather was a career military man. He was in the army his whole life. My grandfather fought in World War II and then he fought again in Korea defending the freedoms that we enjoy here in America. And so because of that I was raised in a very patriotic family. 
My grandfather, I remember being at his home on the holidays, whether it was a, a Memorial Day or a Veterans Day or July the 4th, and he was one of those that always put the flag out on the front of his house, and sometimes he would let me help him do that. But there were strict instructions about how to handle the flag from my granddad. Like, it could never touch the ground. And I had to always carry it upright. And when you folded it up, there was a certain way it had to be folded. And all these rules and regulations that he had surrounding the flag. And the reason is because for my granddad, the flag wasn't about a piece of cloth. The flag was about the sacrifice of men and women who defended the freedoms of America that we enjoy. And I think what Paul is saying here is when you and I approach the Lord's table as just a ritual, when it's just something we go through the motions and don't even give it a second thought, we're not dishonoring a ceremony. It's dishonoring to the one the ceremony represents. It's dishonoring when churches, week in and week out, just go through the motions of the Lord's Supper and just tack it on at the end. It's dishonoring to the one that we're celebrating. Thank you for listening to the Hope Church LV podcast. If you haven't done so already, go rate and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Have a great rest of your day.